ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine. Think of me as your friend and fellow busybody as I talk about everything under the pop culture sun from how to detect when maybe Chloe and Tristan are back together based on the types of IG stories she posts to recapping your favorite reality shows from Sister Wives to Vanderpump Rules, the Housewives Cinematic Universe, and the upcoming TLC show, Seeking Brother Husband. So check me out. Everyone's Business Line airs three times a week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be traveling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. This week, I... Sam Tucker, who is a 14-year vegan um, and founder of a few businesses now. So Vegan Creative Compass, which is a vegan digital marketing agency, as well as Vegan Media Market, which is an online vegan freelancer marketplace. And the, probably what took up the bulk of our conversation in this week's episode was Sam's latest venture, which is VEG3, an artificial intelligent marketing assistant for vegan businesses. And we got into all kinds of ethical debates about um, AI in general um, and who is coding, who is teaching AI um, and what are the results that we will yield from it, not only in the vegan community but in sort of wider society, I guess. So it's, a, it's a little bit of a deep conversation, I guess, um, towards the end there. But um, Sam is a, a fantastic human uh, with with lots of great ideas and, and wonderful thinking on the, on the subject. So it was a pleasure to chat with him. So I do hope you enjoy hearing is a conversation between me and the founder of Veg Catalyst, the host company, the parent company of those three businesses I mentioned, Sam Tucker. So it's a pretty long journey, actually, starting from when I was 11 years old. So I'm going to try to give you the Cliff Notes version here. <laughs> Basically, uh, back then, 11 years old, I read this book called Man vs. Beast, which was a fictional book about teenage spies. But in it, one of the teenage spies, they infiltrated this supposedly like radical animal rights group. And in that, they described basically what happened in factory farms. So I remember reading this 11 years old and I thought for sure that's part of the fiction of the book. Like there is no way that that can be what we're doing to animals. So I did some research. I Googled factory farming. I saw footage of how animals were actually treated. And that was the start of what then became probably about a two or three year journey of going vegan. So it started with just not eating animals from factory farms. Then when I was 11 years old, I watched that episode of The Simpsons where Lisa goes vegetarian. And that was actually the first time I'd ever even heard of vegetarianism before. So that was my motivation to go there. From there, I started getting involved with um, like some animal rights activism, some protests against circuses and rodeos and things in my area. I met people who were vegan and they explained to me what happens to animals and like the dairy and the egg industries and uh, never looked back since then. Wow, such a young age! How did uh, people around you react when you when you started uh, talking about this kind of, these kind of subjects when, at such a young age? So when I went vegetarian versus when I went vegan, those were like two completely opposite reactions. So when I went vegetarian, everyone was really supportive of that. My mom actually went vegetarian at the same time as me. Uh, so basically, like when she was growing up, she had had experiences like. They had a pet lamb that they got like forced to eat, for example. So she had had a lot of these experiences where she had thought about the ethics of eating animals 
and, you know, wanted to not do that, but had just, I guess, grown up in that society where, you know, it wasn't seen as an option to do anything else. So she actually went vegetarian the same time as me. But then when I went vegan, that was an entirely different story. Uh, they thought that it was a cult. They'd never heard the word before. Mm. They thought like you've been brainwashed by all these hippies that you're hanging out with. And uh, they thought I was going to just die of a calcium deficiency. So that took a little bit more convincing. I remember actually like when I first went vegan, I basically had to get blood tests every month to show my parents like, look, I'm not dying. It's okay. You can do this. Um, and now they're really supportive. A lot of my family is like vegetarian or vegan now. Um, but yeah, definitely at the time and where I grew up in Hamilton, which is like dairy farming capital of New Zealand, which is like one of the dairy farming capitals of the world, uh, definitely like, you know, more than, what would it be, 14 years ago, it was uh, not as common as it is now. I was going to ask you about that, that growing up in New Zealand, because like, you know, as an outside uh, perspective, um, you know, if I was to list the things that uh, I know New Zealand for, that are sort of the stereotypical things that New Zealand are famous for, we talked about earlier, uh, rugby, uh, Lord of the Rings, and and the milk industry, the dairy mm -hmm. industry, is probably quite high up there too. And probably even more so recently after the milk documentary that, that came out um, and so on, which kind of exposed, uh, put a spotlight on it a little bit. Uh, it would be kind of interesting to hear your perspective on that, like veganism throughout the time that you've been vegan in such a, in a country that, you know, talks about dairy and relies upon its dairy industry so heavily. Yeah, definitely. So it's pretty, uh, pretty like throughout the core of New Zealand culture, I guess, like everywhere across the country. But where I grew up was like even more so it was within like the dairy farming capital of the country. So everywhere was surrounded by farms. There was actually a dairy farm that was on my high school. Um, so it was just very normalized. Like most of the people I went to school with were like farmers or like, well, you know, children of farmers or they were hunters and things like that. So definitely at that time, it was like a, considered a very strange thing to do to be vegan, but that has changed so much in just a really short period of time. I would say these last like three to four years, it's been crazy how much that conversation has shifted. And, and do you think that's, it's you know obviously we're we're in the sort of vegan bubble I guess when when we when we we talk about these things and we are you know really aware of like for example I wonder how many how many folks just generally walking down the street are aware of like the milk documentary for example and these kind of things do do you see that conversation in the sort of right into the mainstream of of New Zealand culture or is it still quite a you know it's been talked about a lot by by vegans and those who are kind of into that kind of ideology and that philosophy, but not necessarily on the, you know, the day-to-day -day news and so on. So I definitely think it has become um, much more part of the more mainstream conversation beyond just vegans. So there's been a couple of things that have been part of that. The milk documentary, like you mentioned, was definitely one of them recently. Another one we had uh, a few years ago, there was a big uh, national expose where undercover footage was released of what happened to bobby cuffs when they got you know picked up in the trucks and taken to slaughter and that was a national conversation at the time that was across all of like our mainstream media outlets and yeah if you look at even just the sales as well in terms of things like plant-based milks like the the numbers for all these things are just skyrocketing so there really has been i think uh quite a wide shift especially with dairy and i think a lot of that in addition to all those animal welfare concerns it also uh, comes from an environmental concern as well. So mm -hmm. something like 80% of our rivers in New Zealand are considered too toxic to swim in now. And we're a country that really prides ourselves on like, you know, clean and green and, um, you know, supposedly taking the environmental issues really seriously. But at the same time, so much of our economy is relying on this industry that, you know, is just decimating our, our natural environment and, you know, causing deforestation and pollution and all these other things in addition to, you know, the obvious issue of the animal cruelty as well. So that's really interesting to hear. So so the, the environmental message is the one that you'd say out of all the, the messaging around, you know, all the many reasons why you would be vegan, you think that that one is probably the one that resonates most with, you know, the wider population of, of New Zealand? 
I think it's hard to say. I think um, it depends a lot on the different um, like demographics as well. I mm. think for a lot of young people, especially the conversations around climate change and like what's our future going to look like, those probably have a lot more impact compared to say like the older generations. So I think that the the ethical argument, like for me, that's always been why I've been vegan. It's been because of the animals. I think also there's some pretty good research that shows uh, people who are motivated by the ethics behind it generally stick with the diet for longer. Um, you know, if you don't just view it as a diet, but you view it as, you know, an ethical uh, decision that you're making, it's definitely, you know, you're less likely to take cheat days and things like that compared to people who are doing it because, you know, it's healthier or it's more environmentally friendly. But I think that all of these things go together a lot. I think it's like whatever reason people go vegan, it's like it's kind of a foot in the door to all of these other issues. Like you might go vegan because you care about the environment and protecting it. But then once you're not actually consuming those products, it's a lot easier to be open to those ethical arguments as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's an, an interesting one. One I've, I've discussed a, a few times with different people. And I'm always really keen to hear their perspectives on because I think on, on one hand, um, you know, the sort of the vegan in me says, you know, the definition is is kind of clear and so we should, you know, the idea of like cheat days and flexitarianism and these kind of things, like something really rankles with me about those sort of <laughs> concepts because it's, we, you know, but it's against the very definition of it. You can't be part-time and so on and so forth. But on the flip side, there is an element uh, of pragmatism that sort of says, well, if that's where people are right now, you know, maybe they'll they'll discover something different as they go down the path, and you know, maybe us in the sort of vegan community, and I'm I'm talking to myself here, need to um, you know, be be a, a little bit more okay and perhaps accepting of that to allow people to go through that journey at their own pace. Yeah, and I'm definitely sympathetic to to both sides of that argument, really, because you know, as to like a a long term ethical vegan for myself, myself, I like really feel that sense of urgency when you see what's happening mm. to animals and factory farms and slaughterhouses. You know, I understand that drive to not want to accept anything less than ending that right now, but. I also think it's important to be pragmatic, like you said, as well, and to meet people where they're at and to help move them towards that world. And that same sense of urgency that drives us to act now, I think, can also, I guess, um, govern the way we think about effective communication strategies as well. So it's like, you know, if, if the choices between, you know, helping someone transition slowly um, and them sustaining that in the long term versus like, asking for all or nothing and getting nothing. Like, I think we owe it to the animals to do what's most effective as well. So I think, like I say, I relate to both sides of it a lot because I do feel that urgency, but I also think we do need to think about on a pragmatic level, what's the quickest road to, to get to animal liberation. 100%, 100%. Thinking about the, the quickest roads and so on and so forth and your personal journey, at what point did kind of activism come into your, your field of view? So I'm probably a little bit um, maybe outside of the norm of vegans in this and that animal activism for me came before I went vegan, not after. So mm. I put a lot of this down to probably like where I grew up and veganism not being a common thing. I think that, um, you know, if I had kind of come across this information later when veganism was more popular, maybe it'd be the other way around. But for me, it's like, at each step, I thought I was like doing the best that I could for animals, right? So it's like I stopped eating factory farmed animals first because I literally thought you needed to eat meat to survive. So I thought like, well, I'll just not eat the animals that, you know, live the worst lives. Then, you know, going vegetarian again, I hadn't heard of veganism before. I didn't know what was happening to animals. So it was actually that process of getting involved in animal activism. It was when I started doing things like going to the circus protests and to the rodeo protests. That was actually how I found out about what was happening in these other industries as well. Did you find people in those sort of those worlds were quite accepting of you being a sort of young activist getting involved early on? Yeah, definitely. I think um, people were like just, I guess, like excited to see someone um, that young kind of like taking these issues seriously. Um, so definitely I felt nothing but acceptance from inside the movement. But at the same time, I'm sure anyone who's ever been to like a circus protest or a rodeo protest knows what it's like. The other side of that, the you know attendees at the protest, not so much. You don't feel so welcome. Uh, definitely, I got a lot of people telling me to get a job, which was really funny to hear at 11 years old. 
<laughs> well, I was going to ask, like, what's what was that like? Like meeting that kind of level of confrontation at such a young age. Like, I mean, I, I struggle personally with the confrontation aspect of these things now. Uh, um, at thirty eight, let alone uh, at eleven, how did you find that? Yeah, so I mean, I guess like I've never been one to enjoy confrontation definitely it's never been um something that i enjoy which but at the same time i guess like that drive to to try to stop like what was happening to animals like that was stronger for me so i guess like you know if somebody said something mean or whatever i would just put it in perspective of like okay sure like that that's not fun to hear but it's nothing like being an animal in one of these circuses or in these oh, rodeos. Sense. So I guess it was just that that perspective for me. Yeah. And how did that activism kind of evolve as you went through the journey? Sort of, you, you started with the kind of circus and the rodeo protest. Then, like you say, you became vegan after that. Um, and how, how did the kind of activism go alongside the veganism as you became deeper into the community? Yeah. So it's definitely shifted a lot over the years. I would say uh, in my early days, I went through what I think is basically a rite of passage for any activist, which is your angry vegan phase, uh, where you're just mad at the world and, you know, uh, want to shout about what's happening from the rooftops. And uh, so, yeah, like I used to wear like a meat is murder shirt everywhere I went, for example, and, you know, uh, just had like quite, a, I guess, an aggressive approach to the activism. Maybe not even aggressive. That's probably not the right way to phrase it because it always came from that place of like, obviously caring about animals and wanting to create a better world. But I think it could be perceived as aggressive sometimes. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't really informed by a lot of strategy around effective communication. And especially you add in a little bit of teenage angst to that picture. And, you know, you can imagine I wasn't the most effective when I, in my early days. So I had a few years of that and just kind of getting more and more frustrated about the fact that I wasn't seeing any results really. So it's like... I was trying to speak up for animals and trying to get people to change their behavior, change you know the products they were consuming to a more animal-friendly way of living, but I wasn't seeing results. So what I started thinking about is basically, well, is there any research on this? So I like sort of boiled it down to, okay, what is it that we're trying to achieve? We're trying to like influence human behavior. And I thought about the fact that that's actually not something that like vegans are the first people to ever try to do. Like marketers try to do that all the time. Psychologists try to do that. Um, so I started looking into a lot of the research in that stuff, like the psychology of behavioral change, the psychology of you know consumer psychology. And what I basically started to find was that everything that I had been doing was completely backwards to what would actually change anyone's mind. So I started getting into, yeah, looking at a lot more of those studies, um, started like following a lot more effective activists and, you know, understanding their strategy, what was working. And that led me towards eventually working for an organization called Vegan Outreach. So we would basically hand out uh, leaflets at university campuses about what was happening to animals and everything about the whole way that their leaflets were designed, even the fact they focused on leafleting, it was all very data-driven. It was all driven by, you know, this research on, um, you know, trying different messaging and different leaflets, seeing what had the most effect on behavior change, kind of refining over time. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but really what that was, was that was like marketing split testing. So... It's the same idea as like if you run, say, ads on Facebook for a company. It's like you come up with a few different creatives, a few different copies, you test them on the audience, you see what works, and you keep refining from there based on the data that you're getting. And once I started taking that approach to my activism, everything changed. It just became so much more effective. The conversations were like more enjoyable too, because rather than feeling like it's me against the world, it's about like understanding how to have a like really good conversation with someone and to actually take the time to like deeply listen to them and understand what their perspective is. And when you do that, people return the favor as well. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be great to hear a couple of those sorts of things that you picked up, some of those tips that you learned yeah. early on, like you say, look, listening to people's perspective, obviously like just to, to get started, but, but what kind of things stuck out for you is like, I definitely was doing this wrong and I need to do this. And then actually I'm amazed at how well this is working. 
Yeah. So a big one that was is very counterintuitive is like, if you want to change somebody's behavior, you have to make them think that you're not trying to change their behavior. So that like, so it's like, obviously as vegans, it's like, we want everyone to stop eating animals, stop eating animal products, stop contributing to that industry. But if you kind of like make it clear from the outset that that's what your goal is, immediately people's guards go up and they start thinking of all the reasons they don't want to change and all the reasons to refute you. So it's like, they're not even in a frame of mind where they're really taking on board anything you're saying. They're just trying to defend their current position. So what I found was that being really curious and using a lot of questions rather than say uh, like you could think of it like almost like a sales pitch as to like the reasons to go vegan. That was a much more effective strategy to get people to come to their own conclusions about why what was happening in these industries was wrong rather than just telling them that it's wrong and trying to like force them to accept that it's wrong. Did you find when you, when you spoke to kind of other vegans, I guess you didn't because they were probably folks who were already in vegan outreach and so on and in organisations where they, they understood the same level of psychology. But th- there's something I'd imagine about, you know, if, if you're sort of in the quote-unquote vegan community and you're doing things for ethical reasons, therefore you're kind of, the, there is a logic that might sort of follow that you're looking at every aspect of your behavior and and sort of putting it up against the benchmark and saying do I feel comfortable with this behavior did you find some folks within the sort of the that vegan world when you were saying to them well you need to you know perhaps talk like this and perhaps this works and you know don't try and convince people that of what your end goal is and so on did you find that there was any resistance to that almost that some people have sort of felt like well I can't I can't do that I don't feel sort of as pure in in my if my intentions aren't clear yeah absolutely I have seen that resistance and probably where I've seen it the most was in myself when I was going through this process right. of trying to be more effective because I felt exactly the same way I really thought like and because that's what had been motivating my activism that whole time. That's what had been motivating that approach was, you know, that really strong sense that things needed to change now. And so I was just, you know, speaking what I felt and all of my sort of like activism interactions. But like really when I boiled it down, it's like I thought about this a lot. It's like, would I rather be right or would I rather be effective? And I thought like to me, that, that's more important, the actual impact that we have for animals, the actual reality of like, you know, how many animals can we get out of these factory farms and out of these slaughterhouses. And so I guess it was a matter of having to just like put my pride aside a little bit and like just think like, you know, ultimately that's all of our goal as vegans. It's like what we're trying to do is create this world that's kinder to animals. And it's like, I think that... Yeah, we owe it to those animals uh, to to you know do what it takes to achieve that. Yeah, hundred percent. When did the idea of setting up your own businesses come into your equation? You know, was that was that fairly early on, or or a bit later? So uh, before that, I spent probably about five years working in the nonprofit space with that role with Vegan Outreach. So I was the Australia New Zealand Outreach Coordinator. So my job was basically going to every university in both countries once every semester. We'd turn up each day, hand out maybe somewhere between two to 4,000 leaflets with a team of volunteers, talk to a few hundred students about veganism. And so I'd been doing this a long time and yeah, focusing on that and trying to be more effective in it. But there were two obstacles that I saw that I thought were limiting the scalability of that impact. Um, and the first one was just the lack of funding in the nonprofit space. So the, I think I saw a statistic that all of the animal rights movement's budget, like for every single charity, their entire operating budget, it doesn't even add up to something like a tenth of the marketing budget of a large corporation that uses animals, like McDonald's, for example. So it was always a, a big issue that impacted our ability to be more effective. It's just there wasn't enough resources in the movement to achieve everything we needed to achieve to go up against these huge industries. So I was kind of already thinking like, okay, so I need to be thinking about ways that we can bring more funding into the movement to achieve more. And the other obstacle that I noticed as well was that everything we were doing was reliant on like one-on-one interactions. So 
you only have so much time in the day, right? And it's like, there's only so many people you can talk to one-on-one. And, you know, in a really good day, if we spent like, you know, 10, 11 hours on a university with like five people volunteering, maybe we hand out a few thousand leaflets. But then we could go home on Facebook, make a post that reaches 10 times that many people overnight with, you know, and that might only take us like 10 minutes to write that post. So I sort of started to think, that the way to maximize my impact from there was to take these skills I had learned with vegan outreach and figure out a way to leverage them online so that it could reach more people and in a way that could sustain itself in terms of funding. So it would simultaneously like make money for vegan businesses while sustaining itself without having to ask for donations. And I guess with sort of like weighing up all these things, Digital marketing for vegan businesses seemed like the best way to achieve that. So I went back to university. I got my degree, uh, Bachelor of Communications, and I started Vegan Creative Compass. Wow. So tell us about the sort of work that you do at Creative Compass. So uh, Vegan Creative Compass is like a vegan digital marketing agency. So we do done-for-you marketing services for vegan businesses, and we also do a pro bono program where we get animal rights charities set up with uh, like free marketing grants. And then we basically set up their ads for a month and then give them an online course showing them how to maintain those ads going forward. Oh, amazing. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great, a great kind of idea. Did you, did you find initially when you set it up that it was difficult to find vegan businesses or did you actually find there was a lot more than you'd, you'd anticipated? So I actually think there was quite an unmet need for this, to be honest. Um, right. we, we found it very easy to get our, our first few clients and then it kind of just kept growing from there. I think that one of the issues that I've seen in the agency space uh, in general is that there's a lot of digital marketing agencies that come at it <clears throat> primarily from the perspective of, I guess, like being a marketing agency. And then later they try to find a niche uh, so that they can, you know, target a small group and be more profitable that way. And I think there's a lot, there were a lot of agencies that were doing that and sort of like targeting vegan businesses, but they weren't necessarily like vegans themselves or they weren't like passionate about the cause or knowledgeable about the cause. It was kind of just like a keyword for them to use. So I think that there was really uh, a lack of, of I guess, people who were, you know, doing this because they wanted to see vegan businesses succeed out of a deeper reason than just, you know, trying to get a paycheck, but to actually make an impact on the vegan movement as a whole. Do you think there's a, something sort of fundamentally lacking as well from, say, marketing agencies that try to support vegan businesses when they they're not vegan themselves. They don't necessarily have those kind of those kind of ethics. Do you think they often miss the mark with with what they're they're sort of telling businesses to do? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's very hard to like promote brand values that you don't hold yourself. Like you can do that, but it's not going to be authentic. And so, I don't think. So, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. I think it's a bad idea. I think just like um, you know, like on an ethical level, I think that. You know, you shouldn't really be marketing and trying to sell something you don't believe in. Uh, like there should be more of a drive behind it. Because I think marketing is like actually a very powerful thing. And a lot of people just sort of like think of it like it's just a job or whatever. But it's like marketing is changing human behavior. Like it's it's a very strong power. And it's something that I think people should think carefully about like what their responsibility is with it. Because marketing can really change the world for the better and for the worst. But even, you know, that sort of thing aside, even just in terms of like the actual results, it's like if you deeply understand the audience you're marketing to because you're part of that audience, then, you know, there's no comparison of the types of results you'll get versus someone who only knows what that audience is like on a surface level, not because they're part of it. How do you see the the growth of kind of non-vegan businesses adding in vegan options and so on and vegan um you know the, the idea the, the the sort of business i'm thinking of uh you know where you have the 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 big burger chain say and they mm. add in their their kind of vegan um the vegan option for january sometimes it it persists if it does well and so on and so forth how, how do you feel about those and their marketing when you compare that with 
the kind of the the rest of the vegan space. Do you th- see it as a good thing that they're in that space and therefore they're 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 making a big noise for all of us, which we can all kind of be on the coattails of or in the slipstream of, or actually there's there's a negative side to it as well. So. Yeah, I guess there's pros and cons to everything, but I think on the whole, I'm very much supportive of non-vegan brands starting to bring in vegan products. And I want them to keep doing that until their whole business is vegan, right? I think like in terms of, if we think about what our goal is of this world where, you know, animals aren't exploited for commercial reasons, it's like, I think it's going to be faster if we get there by getting some of these biggest players in the industry on our side rather than against us. If it's always just like small vegan businesses going up, you know, like a David versus Goliath thing, then I think it's going to be much harder. Like you take, um, Tyson is a good example of this. They've started heavily investing in like a lot of, uh, like plant-based meats and cultured meat and things like that. And they've sort of internally gone through this rebranding where they're talking about themselves as a protein company now rather than just a meat company. So it's like if we can get that shift across the industry, like that's going to just mean so much less resistance on this path towards that vegan world if those who traditionally would have been the biggest resistors are now actually you know, rebrand themselves to like, well, we actually don't care what protein we sell. We'll sell whatever the consumer is buying. You know, it just removes so much resistance in, in that path. Is is there an element of greenwashing to it though, where so mm. like, and I'm just playing devil's advocate really. So yeah. you take Tyson, if they call themselves a protein business as opposed to a meat business, is there an element of them trying to green up their meat offering, which is still the majority of their profit base? Well, I think the question there would be like, does it increase or decrease the sales of meat overall, regardless of like where that's coming from? And I don't see any reason to think that it would. So I don't think there's like, for example, people who are like ethical vegans who are going out and like buying the, you know, plant-based, say plant-based chicken from Tyson and then being like, oh, well now I'm going to buy like the actual chicken as well. Right. So most of the people are, that these larger companies um, that like aren't necessarily just vegan, they're actually not really even targeting vegans. They're targeting mostly like flexitarians, vegetarians, people trying to reduce their consumption. And so in those cases, it's like them bringing out these new products, marketing these new products. So I think a lot of the time we think like that's then has to be competing with a vegan business selling a vegan product. But in Mm. reality, I think what's actually happening is it's competing with the animal product alternative. So I think the more options there are, you know, uh, for consumers, the more choices they have, the more easily available those choices are, then yeah, I see it as competing against the industries that harm animals. And I think that's true also when you think about like all of the different types of products that there are, like, you know, there's also like, we've got, you know, plant-based meat, fermented, cultivated, all these new kind of industries coming out making alternatives. And I think there's this tendency, we naturally think that those things are competing against each other, but I actually think that like we're competing against a much wider market than that. We're competing against, you know, uh, people who are eating animals during every meal. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that sort of, um, uh, in a way, that sort of mindset, I guess, underestimates the scale of the animal agriculture industry. Mm. If you're, you know, if we're sort of worried about one particular aspect of uh, a vegan product uh, battling against another one, there's there's so much meat being consumed. We are we're talking about less, you know, one percent be of of non-vegan of vegan foods. So we're you know we're just trying to chip away at some uh, a, a big you know a big old target insofar as what animal agriculture is doing. So I guess I guess that sort of makes makes sense to me when you put it like that. Thinking about your your kind of your your then path because you set up you set up more than one business. It'd be good to sort of cover about the, the some of the other things you're involved in and particularly um, veganism in AI and AI that those two words together. I I don't necessarily have <laughs> have a clear path to as of yet, and I really want you to kind of uh, help me understand. 
Yeah, well, I think it's not surprising uh, <laughs> that there you don't have a clear path between those two because I guess that's what we're trying to do is like build that path. So yeah. I would say that the way I think about this in terms of like the progression is in the same way that, you know, my activism became more effective when I started like, you know, using data as the driver of that. And then like it became more effective when I started thinking about ways to fund and stuff. This is the next step in that. And I think it's uh, a way that we can leverage data to make even better decisions um, on a level that's beyond uh, what is possible for any individual human to do. So the way that artificial intelligence systems work is very similar to the neurons in our brain. So you can imagine that there's like these computer systems essentially, instead of, so there's a traditional way of how we used to code computers, which was very much just like yes, no logic kind of thing. It was like, we set up you know, a set of rules and in this these conditions, you do this thing. Whereas the way that AI works is it's actually kind of learning for itself. So you give it like an input and then the output that's associated with that. And it starts to figure out these connections and find patterns on its own. And so the real power of it comes when you have these huge data sets that are too big for any human to comprehend. And the AI can then look for patterns. And because it's on a computer, it doesn't have like, you know, the limited attention that humans have. It can see all of that at once and find patterns that would be impossible for us to find. So to put this like in kind of more concrete terms, it might be helpful if I give like some examples of some of the AI models that we've trained. So one that we did was we took 13,000 different scientific studies that were about veganism, animal rights, marketing, all those kind of keywords. We basically um, like collected all these studies from the internet and we trained an AI to go through and read those studies and break them down into a single sentence key finding for vegan businesses and animal rights activists. So it's like no human could ever do that. Like if you're going to read through 13,000 studies, like, you know, that's going to take you the rest of your life. But then AI, that can do that overnight. And then we have suddenly something that is usable by humans um, that, you know, businesses or animal rights charities, even individual activists can start applying straight away. Well, so it's, it's a way to unpick large amounts of data and really understand what's going on in a kind of automated way. That's the, that's the real benefit here. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's one of the biggest benefits for sure. Yeah. It's just like in terms of like what it can do where it can outperform humans would be that. And the other benefit I would say with it is that it's just uh, like cheaper and faster as well. So it's like there are some tasks that AI can do that are just like, you know, it can do it better than humans can. But even the tasks that it can do, where it can do it sort of like as well as a human can, it can do it faster and it can do it cheaper. How are vegan businesses responding to to this kind of usage of, of AI? Yeah, so the response has actually uh, been a lot more than we predicted. Within the first week of the beta release, we already had more than 100 users signed up. So uh, the model that people have been most interested in is the anti-vegan comment responder. I think that right. probably because like what vegan on the planet hasn't had someone comment something dumb on their Facebook at some point, right? Like we've all dealt with that. And so basically what we did is we trained this AI model on uh, basically a bunch of responses to different anti-vegan comments. So we showed the AI like this is, you know, the comment someone left, this is an ideal response. You do that with hundreds or thousands of examples and eventually the AI figures out those patterns and figures out how to do that for new comments that it's never seen. So that's, I think, probably been what people have been most interested in. Also because it's just kind of like fun to use. Yeah. There's an element of that that scares me, I'll be honest. Like, <laughs> scares me insofar as like, so as somebody who runs a vegan business and like, so, so the idea here, just so that I've got it right, so you mm -hmm. would use that to to respond to any kind of trolling and those kind of negative comments that you're getting on your social posts and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The only thing I would add to that is that yep. it's not entirely automated. So ah, we've done okay. that intentionally because, um, you know, 
I think it's important still, especially at this stage of AI development, to have a human in the loop to check over these things before they go out publicly. So it's basically like a program, like a website. You would just copy and paste the response. The AI will give you something back. If you want to use that, you can copy and paste it over or you can edit it first. So yeah, it's still like nothing ever gets posted out automatically. Uh, I think there is definitely potential for more of that kind of thing in the future, especially the more these models train, the less mistakes they make. So what we have now is already like a fairly effective model, but it literally gets more and more powerful every time someone uses it. Because every time someone uses it, you can either upvote or downvote the response, say that was like a good response or it was a bad response. And it trains itself based on that information. So I think it is possible that we're not far away from much more happening in terms of automation. But at this stage, everything that we do is all human in the loop. Nothing goes out until you approve it. Well, that reassures me. (laughs) (laughs) Is is what 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 is was defined as good? Because that that, Mm. even that term to me is like subjective. Subjective, So my idea of what a good response to somebody's comment might be depends on like my my stance on on veganism generally. Really, you know, whether, whether I think. Uh, an argument is a better way to, or to, to you know, to to go with those comments, or whether I think actually, you know, a data-driven response is good, or you know, there's so many different ways, isn't there, to respond to something like that, and it's yeah. a bit in the eye of the beholder as to whether you think it's good. So, what's the correlation between kind of? Uh, good and effective in those kind of, in that kind of space. I, I love that question. It's actually uh, the answer to it. I think is really interesting. So. It's a big, this is a big problem within AI more generally is like, how do you define what is good, right? So it is subjective and depending on how you define that is going to massively impact the type of AI model that you create. So the way we approach this with VAG3 when we did our initial training is we wanted to look at like measurable areas where we could actually like tell if something was good or bad. So it's mm-hmm. harder to do this with something like a response to a comment. Where we can do this is something like a caption on a social media post because we can measure how many likes did it get, how much yeah. reach did it get. We can do the same thing on like a Google ad. We can see like what was the return on the ad spend there. So in our training of all of these models, wherever there was an objective um, measure of what was good or bad, we use that to filter out the information we trained the AI on. So for example, uh, the blog writing one that we have, the way we trained that was purely based around ranking for vegan keywords on Google. So we actually basically reverse engineered Google's algorithm in a sense. So like no human could really tell you, I mean, unless you're very, very deeply involved with Google, how that algorithm works and how to rank for it. But what we can do with a large enough amount of data, if we look at the way, you know, the keywords that a blog ranks for and then the way it was written, the artificial intelligence can basically figure out how to write copy that's more likely to rank. So so there's lots of examples like that where we have kind of an objective measure. At the moment, now we're in a beta test, which is, um, so we trained the models to sort of the best standard we could get them to with the data that we had and with, you know, ourselves as humans given the input. And so what we're trying to do now is we're looking at the ways that vegan businesses and animal rights activists uh, are using VEG3 and trying to make sure that it's now fine-tuned a bit more to giving them the responses that they're looking for. So it is subjective in a sense, but I guess everyone who's uh, a part of the beta test at the moment is sort of like gets to play a role in that. So our hope is that we can kind of, you know, so we train it for the subjective function and in the subjective Mm. function now, we train that across a wide diverse range of people with all of their different ideas about subjectively what's good and bad uh, that are still, you know, going in the same direction. They're still motivated by that same idea to, to help animals. But yeah, we bring in more, I guess, diversity and subjective opinions on these things to hopefully make a model that's now better for whatever people want to use it for across that sort of diverse range. I don't know if this is a too naive a question, 
but I'll, I'll, I'll chuck it in there anyway. No, but, or, or, or a thought process. But if, if uh, there's a, a sort of um, a, a fear in me over like social media generally, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think about you know where, how I promote my own business or how I promote the podcast, for example. And there's kind of ways that I, I don't know if I know, but there's ways that I've seen that are effective that I don't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a as a as a business owner, as a podcast host, as these kind of things, there's there's kind of you know there's things I could do in my posts that I know would 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 do better you know, in the algorithms. Um, and I know would, you know, if I, for example, like if I inflame a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, of, of the, you know, the, uh, I put an inflamed viewpoint out there, I'm going to get more response to it. I'm going to get more engagement and so on and so forth. And I don't, I don't do that because I don't, I don't want to. Is there scope for that? And forgive me if you've kind of already answered that. Um, but I, you know, I am really, really green when it comes to this stuff. Um, is there is there scope for you as a business owner to be able to manage your your message how you want to? Because you know, there, there might be two posts say that that post is going to get me a thousand likes and that post is going to get me a hundred, but that one is the hundred people that I want. Because those those yeah. hundred people are my, they're my people with my way of thinking. Whereas those thousand people are not necessarily who I want to be talking to. Does that make sense? Yeah, that <laughs> absolutely makes sense. And it's a really good question and something that is a real big issue on social media with um like the way that the algorithms work to only kind of work to try to maximize engagement. And I think that actually does cause a lot of um like social issues as well because. What happens when, um, you know, the most offensive, most um, enraging posts are the most engaging? Suddenly you have an algorithm that's optimized for trying to make people mad. And that's obviously like not what you want. So I think that to me demonstrates the importance of human in the loop when it comes to Mm. training AI systems. Uh, So like this is a problem with like if you, you know, are setting like, an optimization goal, I guess, for a machine that doesn't understand all of these nuances of, um, you know, the complexities of being human and it's just trying to optimize for a single goal. So I think uh, that's why it's really important to have someone in that process who is like manually reviewing these things as well. So uh, for example, like at the moment during our beta testing phase, like when people are upvoting and downvoting responses, we all of those get manually reviewed before they get fed into the AI as well. So it, it it's like a way to sort of speed up that process from the user perspective. But you know, humans are like reviewing these things as well, and not just like you know hoping for the best. So yeah, I think it it is honestly like one of the biggest challenges is I think for AI systems in general is like what do you optimize for and um, yeah, because there's all sorts of unintended consequences if you blindly optimize for one thing. So, yeah, I would say the answer to that is having a human in the loop and also testing the models regularly as well and making sure that they're not having these, like, you know, um, unintended results. And that's why, like, with where VEG3 is at the moment, we make sure that basically nothing is automated. So, like, nothing will go out until a human has actually reviewed it. So we also thought about this a lot when we were training the blog writing models because um, basically like it would have been possible if we had wanted to, we could have created a model where you literally just put in the SEO keywords and it writes an entire blog and posts it for you straight away. Like that, we, we had the data and you know the software to be able to do that, but we intentionally decided to break it down into two separate models. One that creates an outline for your blog. So like uh, headline and then various subheadings and another way you use those two to create your paragraphs and we did that because we wanted people to actually be reading what the AI is creating checking over it making sure that it fits with their brand voice maybe regenerating paragraphs if they don't rather than just having it you know all done in one go and then people post out 10,000 of those without reading them it's just incredible. The whole thing's mind blowing to me, and and even the human in a loop bit makes me human in the loop bit makes me think. 
okay, I trust it when you're the human in the loop and your, or your business is the human in the loop. And then it makes me think about Elon Musk being the human in the loop in, say, Twitter. Or, you know, uh, and I appreciate there's people who work for him, but people work with work for him with that ide- ideology. Um, and, and, yeah, just the, the, whole, the whole concept sort of, there's still some... I guess, like with anything new like this, it's it's being written, and when it's being written, and there are people involved in it, we have to look at their intentions and whether we want to be with those folks or not with those folks. Whether we agree with them, we disagree with them, so on and so forth, and and put our sort of chips where we where we want to put our um, uh, you know put our faith. So I'm kind of pleased you're in this space, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. I think it's, um, you know, that concern, though, is not unique to AI. I would say that concern Mm. is the same with any new technology that is more powerful than what came before it. So, like, the way I see it is that all of these new technologies are just tools. They're not good or bad in themselves. They just, uh, like increase the impact of whatever it is you're trying to do with that tool, right? So uh, the analogy that I like to use is a sledgehammer. So imagine with a sledgehammer, you kind of, you could build an orphanage with that and create, you know, some really great impact, or you could smash your grandma's head in with it and do something really horrible. It's not that the tool itself is good or bad, it's purely what you're doing with it. And I think AI is a very, very powerful tool and definitely in the wrong hands. I think it can do a lot of damage and I think increasingly more we're going to have to have conversations as a society about how we regulate these things as well and how we make sure that these tools are being used for the right reasons because you know if you think about again like the way they work in terms of just optimizing for a function it's like if that function we were all optimizing for was a kinder better more abundant world like how great would that world be if we had you know ai systems that were all devoted to that but if we have AI systems that are devoted to, you know, how can I get the most ad revenue at any cost, regardless of anything else, it's going to be a very different world. Sam, it's been an absolute education. I've learned, I've learned lots, and uh, and I have lots to think about from chatting with you. I really do appreciate it. Where can folks go to find out a little bit more about what you're doing with uh, VG3, uh, Creative Compass, so on and so forth? So the best place to go would be to vegcatalyst.com. That's the parent company for all of these different brands. So you can find all of the links uh, to social media and to the different sites there. Amazing. I'm going to pop them all in the show notes as well so folks can can go and explore and I'd encourage them to as well. So thanks so much, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been great speaking to you. Thanks for the time. 